Amen. You may be seated. And welcome. It is so good just to be back home and to be able to worship with you. You know, it's pretty amazing. You get away just for a week. And even though it was a great week, it's, it's amazing how much we just miss our church family. So I want to welcome you. If you're a guest, it's great to have you here. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and find your way to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the uh, black Bibles that are in the pew, um, and you can find uh, the fifth chapter of Ephesians on page 919. And We open up God's Word every week because it is God's Word, and we want to hear what God has to say to us. And with that, I do want to say that this September, Pam and I will have been married 30 years. What an amazing thing. Boy, is she a fox. Do you see how dark my hair is? In fact, I have hair. A lot has changed in 30 years. But the fact that we will be married 30 years is a miracle. It is God's grace. Our marriage has survived a lot. It has survived personal tragedy. It survived professional tragedy. And it survived us coming into this marriage with a lot of baggage. We were both married young to other people. And those didn't end well at all. They ended in divorce after lots of hurt and betrayal and dishonesty. And three years after we were divorced, we met each other. And it was glorious. Three months after that, we were engaged. Three months after that, we were married. Three months after that, she was pregnant. And as Pam says, we were efficient. And we were. I brought a son into the marriage for my first marriage. We were both running our own development companies and real estate companies and and construction companies. And just to simplify, just so we'd simplify things, we ended up getting into the restaurant business. And uh, it was amazing. Um, To top all that off, we came from different backgrounds, didn't know the Lord. And in many ways, we were pretty competitive with each other. But we loved each other deeply. But also, if you know us, you know that we both have pretty strong personalities. And sometimes that can craze fiction. Now, we've never had a fight, but we've certainly had some, okay, we've had some fights. I want to call them vigorous conversations. And sometimes they're more vigorous than others. 1997, we moved to Dallas from Las Vegas. And nine months after that, we heard the gospel for the very first time, the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ, about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you turn from your sin and turn to him by faith, you could have eternal life. Without going through the whole story, our lives were radically transformed that night, and we went from this to kind of like this, (laughs) all right? Three sons, and now we have three daughters-in-law, and we have a granddaughter, and just thought I had to put her on there just for effect. That's Kaya, who's 10 months old, and we love her. Dramatic change. We both had a hunger and thirst for God's word. But what shocked us as we got around other believers is how many Christian marriages were struggling. We saw it everywhere, and we were in one of the largest churches in the country, a Bible-teaching church, and so many were struggling. Now, a couple months after we became believers, somebody gave Pam a book on biblical womanhood, and it rocked her world. 
Pam had run her own construction and development company. You got to be pretty tough to run a development and construction company. And so when she got this book, she started living out the truths that she was reading about. And her goal was now to try to help me, to serve me, to do things for me, even though she had done it before. But now it's like that was she was committed to that. I'm thinking, who is this woman? What happened to my wife? But it was actually wonderful. And she started pouring into other women, teaching them the truths of biblical womanhood. And they started changing. They started being willing to, 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 to be an integral part of those marriages and, and to, to, to really uh, to submit to the leadership of their husbands. But the problem was so many men had abdicated their, their responsibilities as biblical men. And there was a leadership vacuum in the church. And so finally, Pam, in the, in the home, so Pam finally got with me. And she goes, Bill, you got to get with these men. I didn't know what to do. I didn't grow up in a family like that. And so I ended up getting books on spiritual leadership and manhood. I started pouring into men. And then we decided the men need to hear what the women were hearing. The women need to hear what the men were hearing. And we wrote a course called Practical Steps for a Biblical Marriage. It was an eight-week course and basically God's design for marriage. And we said to people, we have no training in marriage counseling. We have no training in, 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 in psychology or anything like that. But what we have is God's word. And God's word has given us all things for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. Everything you need to know for marriage and how to live a godly life and have a thriving, incredible marriage is right here. Here's what we found. People knew God's word, but they didn't live by it. It has no value just to know the word of God if you're not going to live it. People that would declare that Jesus was their Lord with their mouth, but didn't live it. It is when you start submitting to the word of God, that's when everything comes together. James says, do not be just hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. And what we learned is many people were struggling in their marriages. They were focused on one of two things. The first was they were focused on self. The unholy trinity. Me, myself, and I. They were not committed to living out God's ways. It was all about, are you meeting my needs? Are you making me happy? The second focus that we saw is they were focused on changing their spouse. Now, I've talked to guys who've been married for 20 years, and he says, I've been trying to change it for 20 years. And I said, well, how's that working out for you? Not so good. Why would you keep trying then? Listen, you can't change your spouse. You can pray for your spouse. But you can only change you. And that's the point. When we read God's word, it's not like, I wish my spouse would line up with this. It's, it's speaking to us. And marriages that thrive are ones where the, both the husband and the wife, they know the word of God and they live it out. It's not just surviving, but it's thriving. So I want to give you some clarifying thoughts before we get into this message, and I think it's, it's important. First clarifying thought. This message is helpful for everyone. Now, some of you might be single and think, ah, I'm not so sure. But there's a good chance there will be a day, not everybody, if you're gifted for singleness, that everyone will be married. So these truths, these principles that I'm going to be teaching out of God's word, this is what you're looking for. This is what you want to aspire for, towards. It's helpful. 
But if you're divorced, and some of you are, let me just say this, I'm sorry for the pain that you've been through. And your best days are probably ahead. But here are truths you can apply, not just to your future spouse, if, you, if, if that's Lord's will, but to those around you. And for some here, we know we have some widows and widowers. And again, that, that's a very sad thing. But once again, this is God's word. And God's word is profitable. And you may just take what you learn over these next couple of weeks and be able to help others. That's why God's word is so important. And that brings us to the second clarifying principle. And that is this. The Bible is God's word. So important just to get that in your understanding. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'll put it on the screen. Paul says to Timothy, he says, all scripture... All scripture, in fact, how much scripture? All scripture is breathed out by God. Every single passage of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it's all breathed out by God. And notice it is profitable. Profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, anybody that's a believer in Jesus Christ may be complete or perfect as the word says, equipped for every good work. God's word. It's, 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 it's breathed out by God and it's profitable for proof. That's knowing what, or excuse me, for, for teaching, that's knowing what's right. For reproof, that's knowing how to get right. Or knowing, uh, knowing what's not right. For correction, knowing how to get right. And for training in righteousness, knowing how to stay right. These are God's words, not mine. Why we open up the scripture. Third clarifying statement. The vertical drives the horizontal. The vertical drives the horizontal. Pam and I have done a lot of marriage counseling over the years. And so often, for so many years, people are trying to get right with each other. And if you sit long enough with a couple, and you say, what's wrong in your marriage? And guess what they're doing? They're pointing at each other. I've rarely, I've, on a couple occasions, we've had people point to themselves, and I think that's a great start. But to have a great, thriving relationship with anybody, to have a great, thriving marriage, you must get right with God first and foremost. It's like a triangle. You're here, your spouse is here, God's up here. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to each other. Focus on the vertical. Get right with your, with, with your Savior before you focus on getting right with your spouse. See, you get right with your Savior. You submit to the Word of God and your Savior. The vertical will drive the horizontal. And that leads us to this big idea, and I'll put it on the screen. My relationship with God impacts my relationship with my spouse. My relationship with God, in fact, impacts my relationship with everybody, with my parents, with my children, with my coworkers. You get your relationship with God first. And that's why we've been talking these last months about having a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when you get into Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6, it is all about how we live out our faith. And it's not, and I've said, it's not about do's and don'ts. 
It's about a relationship. And when I am so vitally connected to the vine of Jesus Christ, John 15, then all of a sudden, because I'm connected to the vine, I am producing fruit, spiritual fruit, which radically changes my marriage, which radically changes my relationships. So with that very long introduction, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to start in verse 18. I'm going to kind of jump back into where David preached last week, and we'll start in verse 18. Paul says to Timothy, or to the church in Ephesus, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as a church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There is a lot there, and we're not going to cover it all today. In fact, we're probably going to extend this two weeks into at least three weeks because I just believe this is so important for us today. It is so important for the church. So I want to give you out of God's word three, or excuse me, five lessons today on marriage. Five lessons. Here's the first one. Marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. And what I'm going to say today is really foundational to everything that we're going to be talking about these next couple weeks. Marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. From the very beginning, God ordained marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, between Jesus and his bride. Look at verse 31 and 32 again. He says, therefore, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He's going all the way back to the beginning. He's saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This speaks of a one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. And he says then, the mystery is profound. He speaks of a mystery. We've been talking, we've seen that word in Ephesians over and over again. This is not something that is unknowable, but this is a truth that is now being revealed. So what Paul is saying is saying, listen, there's something about about marriage that it does. Marriage is a beautiful picture of the Son of God and his bride. The mystery is profound. I want you to understand the value of marriage. He, Paul sees the creation of the husband and wife union being modeled in Christ's union with the church. 
Your marriage is a picture. It's a reflection. It's a gospel presentation of God's son lovingly coming for his bride. And it's a picture of the bride willingly receiving her groom. That's marriage. Every time you see a marriage, a Christian marriage, that's what it reflects. First lesson, marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. Or it should be, right? Secondly, marriage should glorify God. Marriage should glorify God. Now, who is Paul speaking to here in Ephesians 1 through 6? Believers. In fact, we see it in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints, those that have been redeemed by Christ. Those that have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, my guess is there's some here that are not believers in Jesus Christ. And we're thrilled that you're here. But when we receive Christ, as we saw in the first couple chapters of Ephesians, everything changes. In fact, we know from what it says that we have been chosen and loved and adopted and blessed and we've been redeemed and forgiven, lavished with grace, given an inheritance. We've been sealed with the, with the promised Holy Spirit. We have been gifted. There's something new that's taken place in us. We're, we're changed from the inside out. And so chapters four through six, it speaks of what we now should look like. The chapters one through three talks about what Christ, what God has done for us in Christ, our new identity. And chapters four through six is all about how we live it out. And so for some of you, some of these truths are going to seem really strange. They were to me. But these are God's word because, see, so often we measure things by what the culture says and not by what God's word says. And that's where so much has gotten off track. So based on who you are, you are to live differently. In fact, we saw in chapter 4 that you're to put off the old. You're to put on the new. You put off the old life, put on the new life. In chapter 5, we saw that we're called to be imitators of God as beloved children. We are now God's children as, as believers in Jesus Christ. And he tells us how we are to imitate Christ. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in the light. And then last week, we saw we are to walk in wisdom. And verse 18 speaks of being filled with the Spirit. Everything that we're going to be talking about these next couple of weeks is all dependent upon us being filled with the Spirit, being, being indwelt. We're, first of all, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're indwelt by the Spirit, but now living by it. Once again, being so connected to the vine, abiding in Christ, that we've defaulted to the Spirit that is in us. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And then you see four adjectives after that, addressing one another. And then in verse 19 also, singing. Verse 20, giving thanks. And then verse 21, submitting to one another. All with the main clause of being filled with the Spirit. So when you see the, the word submitting, that's when sometimes the hair on the back of people's neck starts to rise up. Because I'm not submitting to anybody. But that's not being filled with the Spirit. That's not being controlled by the Spirit. In fact, 
What does that mean? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, I'm going to ask you just to turn a couple pages to Philippians chapter 2. Let me give you a picture of what that is. If you just turn to your right, you're in Ephesians, you just go to Philippians. It's the next chapter. It's the next uh, book. Paul says in chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's it right there. Submitting to one another means that I'm considering others more important than myself, no matter my position. No matter my position. You see that so beautifully in John chapter 13. I mean, you had Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and you had his 12 apostles, and they all had dirty feet, and there was a bucket of water and a towel. Somebody's got to wash somebody's feet. What does Jesus do? He considered others more important than himself. He gave them an example. He said, go and do to others as I have done for you. He washed others' feet. He considered others more important than himself. Even though he was God, he was in the form of God. He lived in submission. He lived in submission first to the Father. But he was willing to serve others. For God's glory. All of this in reverence to Christ. So it says, submitting to one another. And then it says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. Now the word there, submit, is not actually in the Greek. It, it, it says, submitting to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for the Lord, wives to your own husbands. So it's, it's implied And it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, that's a shocking statement today. Submission. People don't like that word. I have to say, I don't love that word in my flesh. Here's what you've got to understand. This is a shocking word only if you have a wrong understanding of God. Only if you have a wrong understanding of God's word. The, and, or, and, or if you take these verses out of context, which is a very, different, uh, a, a very uh, um, dangerous thing to do. Once again, we are to be filled with the spirit. If I am filled with the spirit, submitting to one another is a glory. It's a joy. But if I'm filled with myself, then I'm going to really struggle with that. What this does not say, though, is... Husbands rule over your wives. That's oppression. This verse has been used and abused in so many ways. That's parochialism or patriarchalism. That's oppression. Submission is nowhere demanded in the Bible. This is says wives. Submit, that word submit, it's, it's, it's a Greek word meaning hupotasso. It's a, it's a military word. It's to order under. See, God is a God of order. As, as Jesus ordered himself under God and was in submission to the Father, yet totally, totally equal. It's, it's, it's an order thing. 
husbands or wives are to submit to their husband. I'm going to get into this a lot more next week and kind of show you how this plays out. But the guys are sitting here thinking, man, this is great. I love this. But then you read verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. What's that word love? In the Greek, it's agape. It's unconditional love. It's love without what? Condition. How did Christ love the church and give himself up for her? He took off his royal robes. He condescended and became a man. He took on flesh. He came to serve the church. He came to suffer for the church. He came to die for the church. Husbands, how are you to love your wives as Christ loved us? So when you start looking at these two truths, verse 22 and verse 25, you realize, okay, there's a lot here. And it plays out. It, 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 there's so many ways to apply it. And we're going to spend a lot of time saying, okay, how does this look? How does this work? Now, my point was what? Marriage should glorify God. So where does that in all of this? Glad you asked. Let me put up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, uh, chapter 10, verse 31. Paul says this. So whether you eat or drink, what's the next two words? Or whatever you do, four words, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do should be to the glory of God. Whether we eat, whether we drink, how we interact with our spouses, how we interact with other people around us, do it all to the glory of God. Now, we're in... Philippians, if you just turn a couple more pages to Colossians, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. And there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3. So you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and now Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, there's a parallel passage, and it's much shorter. And you see in verse 18-9, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the, in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. But that's bracketed by two statements. In fact, it's called an inclusio. It's a, it's a bracket. It's like a parenthesis, and it's, it's bracketed. And what's it bracketed by? It's bracketed by verse 17 and verse 23. What does verse 17 says, say? And whatever you do, there it is again, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My marriage should be for the Lord Jesus. The way I love my wife, the way my wife submits to me, respects me. All should be done to the Lord Jesus. You see it again in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You're doing this for the Lord. Your marriage is for the Lord. It's for the glory of God. All right. That's our second lesson. Our third lesson is this. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God. Now, some of you might be thinking, yes, I'm a gift from God to my spouse. I kind of went there and realized it was not a good place to go. I want you to turn all the way back to the beginning. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We're going to do a little Bible study today. Genesis chapter 1. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, that was creation. 
And what did God see at the end of each day as he created at the end of each day? He saw it was good. He saw it was good. He created light and it was good. He created the heavens and it was good. He created the earth and it was good. He created the plants, the seasons, the animals and birds and it was good. And then he created man and woman and what did he say? And it was very good. But then you move to chapter 2 and there was something that was not good. You see that in verse 18. Notice what it says in in chapter 2 verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God, in his sovereignty, in his grace, provided a gift. Marriage. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. Out of man, God made a woman. And you see, after God had created the woman, verse 20, and we see this one flesh relationship in verse 24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is seeing that marriage was instituted by God for the good of man, for the glory of God. And we see in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What does that say? There was shalom. In the home, there was peace. This was a glorious time. It was shalom. Everything is good. Everybody loves each other. Walking through the garden, hanging out with God, eating all the fruit of the garden, it was all good. It was marital bliss. That's the fourth lesson, or the third lesson, now the fourth lesson. Marriage is messed up by sin. This is where the, the music changes. You're, you're watching a movie? And it's just like, man, there's been angels and cupids and butterflies. And all of a sudden, the, the, it gets dark. And, and, and the music just completely shifts. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent. Satan had taken on the form of a serpent. Some of you would know that as a snake. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now that brings us back to what we see in chapter 2 verse 16 where it says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God had given a clear command to the man and now Satan is doing what? He is questioning God's word. This is where it just starts to go downhill fast. The minute we start questioning God's word, we're in trouble. He said to the woman, did God actually say, ah, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? You shall not eat of, the, of any uh, tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Uh, and the woman said, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, what did she just do here? 
She embellished God's word. She kind of took a little bit of literary license, and that is where problems begin again. We start adding to God's word or changing it just a little. It's subtle. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now what Satan does is he refutes God's word. And he says, you will be like God. So when the woman saw that the, the tree was good for food and, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And I got a lot to say there, but I'm not going to say it. Then the eyes of both, whose fault was it? Both of them. I'll just say it that way. I'm going I'm to walk right down the middle. I used to say it was certainly the woman's problem, but it's not. It's both of them, but it was his responsibility. So at the end of the day, really, it's God that holds the man responsible, and you just see that. Then the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. Sin does that. All of a sudden, it separates us from God. We've got this guilt and this shame. They knew it. But the Lord uh, God called the man and said to him, where are you? Now, did God know where he was? Yes. But this was a question for Adam to really say in his own heart, okay, where am I? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, absolutely, I did it. I'm responsible. <laughs> nope, he didn't do that. What did he do? He blamed it on his wife. Nice job. The woman who you gave to be with me. This is the one he was just writing poems about. The woman you gave to me, Lord. I mean, it's just like, it just gets worse and worse. She gave it to me and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? So what did she just learn from her husband? I don't have to take responsibility. I'm going to blame it on the serpent and the serpent doesn't even have a leg to stand on. All right, so that's terrible, right? What happened? How did their marriage get so messed up? The same way ours does. We question God's word. We distort God's word. We refute God's word. We want to be God. We put our thinking above God's word. We are no longer in awe of God, but we have an awe of self. This is why marriages get so messed up. It's all about our ways, our agenda, our thoughts, our desires, our choices. If you want to know why you struggle in marriage, you don't need to look beyond sinful self. Shalom, marital bliss is shattered by sin and self. See, in Genesis chapter 3, they stopped seeing God for who he was. They forgot who they were, and their relationship went off the rails, and the results were devastating. And there was no way that they could get back on the rails themselves. Sin had left a crimson stain, and there was no way for them to get out that stain. 
Sin had not only separated mankind from God, but sin had separated man from man, created a break in the relationship. Marriage is messed up by sin. But here's the good news, the fifth lesson. Marriage has its hope in the gospel. Marriage has its hope in the gospel. In the midst of the devastation, God gives hope. In the midst of the judgments for their sin, God gives them hope. We see in the following passages, the consequences of the fall. There's three judgments. There's a judgment against Satan. There's a judgment against the woman. And there's a judgment against the man. Let's look at the the judgment against the woman first. That's in verse 16. And there's two parts to that. First of all, in verse 16, it says, he says to the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In, In pain, you shall bring forth your children. Now, I've never had a child, but I hear that's true. But the second one, the second part of the judgment was, your desire shall be for your husband. And I'm thinking, of course. She's, yeah, I'm going to walk through this door and she's going to just want me. That's not what that says. That's not what that means. And I realize that when I, now, for the dogs when I walk in the door? <laughs> no, my wife gives me a kiss every time I walk in the door. But the fact is, what he's saying here, your desire for, will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What is that saying? That, that speaks of an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage. The roles as designed and ordained by God have been, have been damaged by sin. And that's what affects all of our marriages. And it, refle- it, it causes conflict in the marriage. No longer submitting to one another. No longer following their ordained roles. That was the judgment against the woman. How about the man? Verse 17, and Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. There it is right there, man. Don't listen to your wives anymore. (laughs) Okay, that's not what that means either. He's saying, because you listen to your wife over the word of God. It's when we listen to others in lieu of the word of God, that's when we're messing it up. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. He says, cursed be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your lives. And what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, you were in the garden when everything was blessed. You just ate as you wanted. But now you're going to have to work hard and it's going to be hard. It's going to be a pain. That's the curse. But then there's the curse on Satan, the judgment against Satan. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her seed. And what he's saying between your seed in the original and her seed. Now, this is something we know. A woman doesn't have a seed. But this speaks of a coming son. This is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Notice what it says here. He says, he says, he shall bruise your head. That's what happens at the cross. Or excuse me, and you shall bruise his heel. So at, at the cross, Jesus would be bruised. His heel would be bruised. But Satan, his head will be crushed at the resurrection. And and what this speaks of is it speaks of the victory that we have in Christ. 
the one whose heel was bruised would crush the head of Satan. How does, how does uh, Jesus crush Satan? By providing the sacrifice, Jesus would pay for all sins of all people who put their faith in him. The cross is a place where Jesus would defeat sin and death and purchase the freedom for those who are in bondage to sin. He would redeem us back. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is a glimpse of a coming Savior. One that would cover our sin, that would cover that crimson stain and make us white as snow. Verse 20 says, the man called his wife's name Eve because he was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Why is that important? Good question. That is the first sacrifice in the Bible. See, and back in verse 7, what did they do when they realized that they were naked? They got some fig leaves and they sewed them together. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the Midwest and leaves by fall get really crunchy. And they start falling off. That's not a good look. So what does God do? The first sacrifice. Showing that there would be a more permanent covering for sin. In verse 15, you have the Proto-Evangelion. You have a picture of the seed of the woman, Jesus. That he would crush the head of Satan. And then we see a picture in verse 21 of a sacrifice. Jesus will come and make all things right. This is what this is picturing. Listen, this is the hope for marriages. It's the gospel. Jesus sacrificed. He took the penalty for our sin. He took our sin and shame. He became a sacrifice in our place to die a death we deserve to die. And he raised him on the third day so we can live in victory. And if we take these truths that God has laid out in his word, we can have incredible relationships. We can have incredible marriages. Now I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. Marriage from the very beginning is precious to God. Your marriage is precious to God. Now, I'm not, I'm not naive. And I know how our marriages can get messed up. But, but hear me on this. These truths that we're going to be teaching over these next few weeks, they're designed to help you, first and foremost, submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but then live in a way that brings glory to God. And so you can have a marriage that doesn't just survive, but that it thrives. Marriage is precious to God. It is a reflection of Christ in the church. God is, it's so important to him. And it should glorify him. It's a gift to us. And it's redeemed by the gospel. I'm going to have our, our ushers get ready as we get ready to take communion. I think it's a great time to take communion because the gospel is our hope for marriages. We must remember the sacrifice Christ made on the cross. It is through the cross that not only are our lives redeemed, but our marriages are redeemed. So what we're going to do is we're going to have our ushers come forward and we're going to have a couple stations here and we'll make sure that upstairs gets one. And, but let me just talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. It's for believers. It's for those that have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
And Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he says, I have earnestly desired to have this meal with you. He wanted them to have a way to remember his sacrifice on the cross. And let me just say this. Every time we celebrate communion, you should not only just understand the fact that Jesus died on the cross and was raised, but that it was so you could have a redeemed marriage. Not just a redeemed relationship with Jesus, but a redeemed, a restored relationship in your marriage. Christ suffered so we could have a victory so we could live in victory.